Hello, I'm DJ Holiday from WXAV. And I am Natalie from the Xavier Rape. And today we sat down with Jim Dirogatis. First of all, I just wanted to ask, uh, what got you initially into wanting to do journalism? Ah, well, you know, I was uh, always a voracious reader. I don't think anybody who uh, uh, wants to be a writer doesn't start out first and foremost. Um, you know, and I uh, worked for my high school newspaper uh, and yearbook. Uh, I was more interested in writing record reviews than news. Mm-hmm. But I went to journalism school at NYU, uh, still interested in writing record reviews. And I wasn't waiting for uh, anybody's permission to do that. I did my own fanzine all throughout the 80s. Uh, uh, nobody's going to publish you. Do it yourself. So much easier today. You just go on the web. But it's something I always wanted to do, to write about music. Absolutely. you got to have a passion. Um, and yeah. I know you used to work for the Sun-Times. So what are your thoughts about WBEZ possibly buying out the Sun-Times? Well, you know, I think uh, Chicago Public Radio, BEZ, is a, is a great institution. It's been challenged financially uh, with the pandemic and with the same challenges all of journalism is facing. You know, the Sun-Times has been on life support uh, for quite some time. I left about 12 or 13 years ago. Uh, I always believed in the paper, uh, and there were many, many great people who worked there, and some still do. So, uh, you know, I, I think it makes sense to uh, merge with uh, merge those two entities. And, uh, you know, anything that's going to put more reporters out covering our community is a good thing. No, absolutely. And would you say in a way that journalism can kind of hold people or institutions accountable in ways that the law might not even be able to do? Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, the journalist's role uh, goes, the old saying is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Uh, It's a cliche almost. But, you know, you look at something like BEZ's recent reporting on the Chicago lifeguards uh, scandal that was decades uh, long, uh, you know, sexual abuse of female lifeguards by male employees of the city. You look at uh, the R. Kelly story. You look Mm at uh, uh, everything right now. Uh, So many stories are pressing uh, in the era of Trump and just sort of almost post-Trump. You know, the fact that we have... uh, Uh, such a huge percentage of Chicago police officers whose job is to protect and serve from the homeless person on the street to the Gold Coast uh, resident, and that they're reluctant to get vaccinated. You know, why? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, because of some ridiculous political belief in conspiracy theories or forwarding the big lie that the election was stolen. We're at a time where people's grasp on facts uh, is super tenuous and frightening. You know, the fact that, you know, uh, so many of us are trying to uh, stay healthy and so many other people have fallen prey to this uh, uh, plague, you know, and we have a vaccine that helps. And yet you have a huge chunk of America, something like 40 percent, that are not doing what they need to do in order to beat this back. Totally agree with you, and especially with like the variety of ways you can get journalism. I'm actually here also with a member of our school newspaper, and she has a couple questions for you, too. 
Hello, Jim. My name is Natalie. I am the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of St. Xavier University student paper, The Xavier Right. I was wondering if you can uh, share the memory with us that made you fall in love with music. Ah, well, you know, um, I remember discovering a stack of records that my dad had left behind. He died when I was five years old. We had this ancient old, uh, it's more of a piece of furniture than it was a record player. And uh, I remember playing those records. I didn't much care for the Broadway cast recordings of Oliver or uh, uh, Auntie Mame. Uh, but I remember uh, falling in love with um, Frankie Lane, a very cheesy uh, country and western singer, you know, and um, uh, orchestrated country and western music, you know, Rawhide and uh, uh, Gunfight at OK Corral. And I was just fascinated. And, you know, as I read later, it was this Italian guy from Little Italy in Chicago, uh, Frankie uh, Del Vecchio, reinvents himself as a operatic crooning cowboy. I mean, to me, that's the story of pop music. You know, you can become anything that your imagination uh, can can picture, you know, in popular music. And, you know, you see that from, you know, Frankie Lane up to, you know, Kurt Cobain. I'm going to escape this, uh, you know, and, and beyond to the present. I'm going to escape this small town of Aberdeen where I'm supposed to just get drunk and work for the logging company, and I'm going to do something else, something alternative, something different. So what do you think about our current music scene? Well, you know, I mean, there is great music made today. There was great music made in 1967, 1977, 1987, 1997. I hate mm -hmm. this notion of people sort of calcify um, in what they, you know, whatever era they were a teenager. You mm -hmm. know, uh, they tell you this lie. Nothing you ever hear is going to be as great as the Beatles. And that is just such bullshit. You know, there's a band today, you know, rehearsing in some basement in Oak Lawn that is going to be better than the Beatles or better than Nirvana or uh, better in the sense that you are there now and hearing this music in the present and it can move you every bit as much as whatever artist you can name that preceded uh, them, you know. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's merely 25 incredible albums released in a year and sometimes there's a hundred but there is always great music being made it depends on you to seek it out no absolutely i think that brings up a really good point too just with the current i think the current music climate in a way like a lot of people have this almost elitist mentality of you know my music is better than yours and my music is better than yours you know and i think that that mm -hmm. almost creates a toxic culture around it yeah, well, there's always been that, you know, boys with their baseball cards, you know. And the fact is that a lot of great art is being made uh, all the time in whatever genre. And the means of delivery are changing, you know, might not be a vinyl album or a CD or there's Bandcamp and there's SoundCloud and there's, mm -hmm. you know, independent movies released on YouTube and there are self-published books and you know, the gatekeepers are changing away from big corporations, but great art is being made all the time. And, uh, you know, I perhaps naively, optimistically believe that, uh, you know, the stuff that is truly worth being heard, uh, you know, uh, you'll hear about it. 
you know, there is an ability now to reach an audience without major corporate, uh, major label hype, you know, uh, that you can release on SoundCloud and um, go viral. And, and if it's great, people are talking about it and it picks up a certain momentum. You don't need the radio station and payola and video and, mm-hmm. you know, you can reach an audience. But it, it requires uh, the audience to be hungry. And some people just, uh, uh, this is an alien attitude to me and one that I can't understand whatsoever. You know, some people are just like, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't have the energy to discover new music. Uh, I've never understood that attitude. Uh, if you love food and you've eaten at the French Laundry, you know, one of the greatest restaurants in America, or Alinea in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. You don't say, well, I never have to eat again. I've now had the best meal I'm ever going to have. You know, I mean, that's like ridiculous. <laughs> right. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so why do people treat music that way? That's a good question to bring up, actually. You know, I think part of it is also just for them. It's the time period that's reminiscent, not just the music. Like you said, it's like what was popular when they were teenagers and stuff. So for yeah, them, but it's, you know. is the kiss of death for all great art. Oh, yeah. You know, there is uh, living in the past... Uh, is is denying uh, an incredible amount of, of wonderful art that's being made in every genre, music and film and, you know, fashion, you name it, video game design. Um, you know, art moves forward. And some people just get stuck at one place in time. Um, and that's always sad to me because it means that you're closing yourself down to new experiences and, and new discoveries. So, Jim, is it okay if I ask you a question about R. Kelly? Sure. So, after working the R. Kelly case for many years, how did it feel to hear the guilty verdict in New York? You know, um, every journalist, my friend, always wants to know how I felt or how, you know, was it hard to keep telling this story for 21 years or how did you feel when he's finally convicted? I honestly always just thought of the women who had trusted me to tell their story. And I had been speaking to several of them throughout the trial, and I know how they felt. Uh, they were glad that he was finally being held accountable for his actions, and they also felt uh, a sense of sadness that this was too little, too late. Why did it take 30 years from victim number one in 1991? You know, and uh, uh, it was never about me. Uh, you know, I was telling the story of women who trusted me and, and said, you know, no one is listening to us. We've been hurt. Uh, can we talk to you? And I don't know why more journalists weren't talking to those people. How long did it take to really gain their trust? Because I'm pretty sure that was a terrible thing, you know, for them to endure. Like, how did they begin to really trust you with this information? You, you know, um, there were some uh, cases of, of me spending nine months or uh, it took nine months uh, for Dominique Gardner to decide she wanted to talk to me. It took uh, three or four years for Geronda Pace to decide she wanted to talk to me. But honest to God, the vast majority of the people, many of whom we did not name, uh, who we granted anonymity for the very best journalistic reasons was, uh, you know, that they were going to get hurt if they were on the record with their name attached to the information they were telling us. But if I go back to November 2000, 
when Abdon Palish and I at the Sun-Times spent six, six weeks on that first story, you know, we were never, uh, people were never saying, I have nothing to say to you and slamming the door. You know, we had many people in the African-American community saying, you know, thank you for ringing my bell. Come in, sit down. You know, no one has believed the story we're telling. Thank you for listening. And that those experiences far outnumbered. I never twisted anybody's arm. I would just say, uh, you know, uh, we hear you have a story to tell, that you've been hurt, and we're willing to listen. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, really after that first story in de- December 2000, um, you know, we had proven that we were serious and that we were getting this right. If, if I can, you know, the one thing I'll share as a journalist, a point of uh, geeky pride, is that in 21 years of reporting on Kelly, there was never a single lawsuit, correction, clarification, or retraction. Everything I've printed in 21 years, uh, we had right. You know, and to see, you know, the one point of pride I will take, how did you feel when the conviction came down? It was more like how I felt every day covering the trial to hear things presented in a court of law as fact, backed up with uh, hundreds of pieces of evidence that the government entered in that case. Uh, You know, these things that I had reported, you know, seeing them now laid out in a court of law. And I think that the biggest, uh, uh, the, the best feeling from the verdict was finally these victims have been believed. They've been heard. And they've been believed. And, you know, but that's, you know, uh, that bumps up against why didn't this happen, you know, uh, 30 years ago? Why didn't this happen with the first story in 2000? Why didn't this happen when he was tried in 2008? Why didn't this happen when in 2013 he's being booked to headline Coachella, Bonnaroo and Pitchfork? Mm -hmm. Were you unaware, you know, these gatekeepers of of music press and music hipness, they were not unaware. They just didn't care about the many people that this this man had already destroyed their lives, many women. Why do you think they didn't care? Why do you think that this was like ignored and kind of brushed under the rug? I think there's a couple of answers. I mean, number one, you're a young woman. You're familiar with rape culture. Mm-hmm. Women in general are not believed. Uh, we know that only one in four sexual assaults is ever reported to authorities, and only one in five or one in four of the ones that are reported ever result in justice. Women are not believed. Number two, there's an undeniable element of race here. Uh, you know, women in general are not believed, but black women are especially not believed. And as a fat white rock critic, why did people trust me? I was willing to listen. I'm not of the community. I'm not a woman. I'm not a black. Uh, You know, uh, but I was willing to listen and to verify and report. Um, You know, and I'm only ever amplifying the voices of dozens of young women who've told me since the start of this career, I was a young black girl Nobody wanted to listen. Nobody believed me. I'm assuming you've endured a lot of negative experiences while covering this case. Um, can you please tell us how they affected you, but not not only you, but your family? Well, that's another one of those questions where, you know, 
uh, sleepless nights for me and the fact that I didn't start smoking until this damn story, that is nothing compared to the courage of the women who spoke out, what they endured from their families, from their churches, uh, you know, uh, being vilified on social media. You know, I'm a I'm a thick-headed guy originally from Jersey, been in Chicago a long time. I got a thick skin. Um, it's nothing, anything that I've ever uh, uh, endured. Nothing compares to the bravery of those women. And to see them vilified, you know, right now, Kelly's physical product sales have increased by more than 500%, and his streaming uh, has gone up 25%. Um, more people are listening to Kelly now than they were at any point in the last 10 years. And more people are saying that those women were liars, opportunists, media-hungry, you know, uh, greedy. Um, these are sexual assault victims. These are rape victims. I mean, it's statutory rape. You know, a 15-year-old cannot consent to sexual relations with a 27, 37, 47-year-old man. Um, these are rape victims, and they are still not believed. So uh, that just makes me sick to my stomach. So why do you think people support him as much as they do? Well, that's a complicated answer, too, just like, you know, rape culture and racism. I mean, you know, music is the most intensely personal art form. If I Believe I Can Fly was your kid's kindergarten graduation theme and Step in the Name of Love was your wedding song and Ignition Remix powered every backyard barbecue you ever went to with friends and family, you know, that music is yours now as much as it is his. You know, it is part of your life and your emotional memories, you know. Um, and so it's very hard to turn on that, you know, and turn it off and stop that and the mute R. Kelly. Um, on the other hand, your support of this artist enabled him to be a sexual, sexual predator uh, you know, uh, destroying the lives of, of vulnerable young victims for 30 years. So this is this is what we're going to talk about. I mean, separating the art and the artist is a uh, uh, a noble idea, perhaps, because a lot of horrible people make great art, but there are degrees of horrible. You know, R. Kelly is now officially the biggest predator in the history of popular music where men have been treating women badly since the Bobby Soxers of the 40s to last week. Um, that's saying something. And it also is saying something that for the first time, women of color were believed. And this is the first significant verdict in the Me Too era where the victims have all primarily been black, black women. No, absolutely. I think all the points you just made there were pretty true. And there was something that you had brought up earlier that you had also brought up in a couple interviews, which is that uh, you said the system has failed young women of color, which I also agree with. But how do you propose, like, what are things that we can all do, not just not just things that the government can do or that the justice system can do, but what are things that we as a community can do to improve this? Well, I think um, you got to shout it from the rooftops. I think that the example that Kenyette Tisha Barnes and Orinike Odele uh, presented with the Mute R. Kelly movement, they were ferocious, they were focused, 
They were not going to shut up about people giving this man their concert dollars, their their music buying dollars, mm-hmm. uh, when he was destroying the lives of young black women, you know, their sisters, their cousins, their aunties, their best friends. Um, you know, I think all of us have to make as much bloody noise as we can. And it's like, okay, Jim Deere, that's easy for you. You're on the radio. You're a journalist. Uh, you can get published in The New Yorker. Yeah. Well, you're journalists, too. You're radio broadcasters, too. Mm-hmm. And even if you're not, you know, there's a piece of oak tag and a Sharpie. Go stand on the corner. Right. And that's how Mute R. Kelly started. And, you know, it, it was me telling the story of... Uh, a tireless mother and father from Atlanta who began fighting to get their daughter Joy home uh, reached out to me in November 2016. It took nine months to publish that story in BuzzFeed in July 2017. Mute R. Kelly starts then and there, right mm-hmm. there, and never stopped. And, uh, you know, Mute R. Kelly, the savages lead to Mute R. Kelly. Mute R. Kelly leads to uh, surviving R. Kelly. Surviving R. Kelly leads to a federal investigation. And finally, 30 years late, uh, the biggest predator in the history of popular music is stopped. You know, Mm -hmm. I know it was difficult for those women. uh, And they got vilified in social media and they got sick and tired, but they didn't stop. And that's. Uh, that's what it takes, you know. No, absolutely. Those are very brave women, and it's amazing what they have done to not only like encourage other young women to be able to come forward with their stories, but just setting like such a great example of what it is to be a really strong woman in today's society, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, and earlier you did mention the whole concept of separating the art from the artist and everything. And obviously this is a case that's absolutely, you know, there's no question about it. But do you think that there's a line that's drawn in the separate the art from the artist? Or do you think that people almost use that as an excuse to kind of hide behind supporting somebody that they know is bad? Um, yeah. And I think on the negative tip, it goes even deeper than that. You know, the music of Charles Manson is still streaming on Spotify, available for sale on Apple and Amazon. Mm-hmm. It is truly shitty uh, psychedelic folk music, right? Yeah. And I like psychedelic folk music. There is no reason to listen to the music of Charles Manson except to revel in that man's evil, mm-hmm. right? It's a melodramatic example, but it helps to look at these big examples, right? right. It's harder for Michael Jackson. I think the world is a worse place without the Jackson five or against the wall. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. but in his case, the last two albums of his career where he's continually protesting his innocence, uh, not molesting these boys being wrongfully framed by the prosecutor of Santa Barbara County, California, you know, those are the worst albums of his career. So living without invincible and history is no problem. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, with Art Kelly, it's different. I mean, from day one, his entire catalog is a celebration of a view of hedonism Mm -hmm. that says, I will take my pleasure wherever I desire with no concern for the lives I ruin. You know, what's the album he made for Leah? He's having sexual contact with her when she is 13 or 14. He marries her at age 15, now proven in a court of law. What's the album he wrote for her? 
age ain't nothing but a number. No. He never hid this behavior. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult uh, example when you put it up against the fact that many people grew up with and loved this music. Mm-hmm. You know, what do they do with it now? But I don't think there's a wrong or a right. If you say, I condemn the harm this man did, but I can still enjoy the music, okay, good for you. If you say, it makes me sick to my stomach to listen to his music, okay, you're not wrong either. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is, you know, a problem. We want to be told what to think, you know, often when complicated questions arise. Right. And instead, it's up to every individual to decide for herself this very complicated and thorny question. No, absolutely. I agree. I wanted to get your perspective on it, not only from somebody who has studied this case and been involved in this case for so long, but as also just a big music listener and someone who has quite a bit of history just being involved in the industry overall. So I really wanted to get your perspective on that. And I do I do agree. I think it's good to have a balance of knowing like your own personal boundaries, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there. yeah, right. It's up to every single individual. If we take art seriously, and certainly I've devoted my life to music, I can't mm-hmm. think of anything to take more seriously. Right. Um, then we have to realize that sometimes this has an impact in the real world, and it is not mere entertainment, and we have to think, about what our endorsement of that music uh, or any art form, what it entails, you know, and um, what ramifications, you know. Um, so, so I think this is going to be the singular question for your generation. You know, it's not cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not uh, burning records in the public square. It is beginning to wrestle with the fact of what happens when I support a business, R. Kelly was a business, right, that is doing damage. And, you know, you could say the same thing of ExxonMobil. You could say the same thing of Walmart. I love me a good chicken sandwich, <laughs> but I will not go to Chick-fil-A. Agreed, because yeah. they uh, have, have corporate policies, homophobia, uh, anti-women, you know, that I disagree with. I'm not going to give them my five bucks. It's up to the individual, but I think a lot of people just glaze over things and like, oh, well, it it is what it is. I like it. And it's like, it depends on how much, like you said, how much something means to you, how much certain issues mean to you, you know, if you're willing to kind of draw that line. I just had one more question for you to keep it, to end it on a little bit more of a light note. I just wanted to ask, what does student media mean to the future of journalism and broadcasting? Well, obviously, traditional broadcasting and traditional dead tree journalism is uh, is completely dying and needs a serious reinvention. Mm-hmm. And so it is your generation that needs to find the uh, uh, the answer to how these important, vital public services can be sustained. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. it, it's... Um, it's on you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no pressure. Like, cause, cause we need it. Right. Mm-hmm, and yeah. I'm enough of a capitalist to believe you should get paid for your work. If you're going into mm-hmm. radio or, or journalism, you're never going to get paid. Well, forget about that. Right. <laughs> but you should get paid something. Mm-hmm. And so the economics models need to be, uh, uh, tried and experimented with and, and, uh, and solutions, uh, come up with, 
because Lord knows we need good journalism. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just going to be a matter of how we can have a career doing it and how it will be paid for. Because if I didn't have the editors and the lawyers and the resources to do this R. Kelly story back at the Sun Time or mm-hmm. the six columns I wrote during the course of the trial for The New Yorker, I couldn't have done them. Mm-hmm. I mean, to buy the trial transcripts was several hundred dollars a day. You know, investigative reporting, reporting that is going to make a difference, takes money. Takes money, takes time, takes dedication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the time and dedication you and me can provide, mm-hmm. you know. But buying the court transcripts, uh, yeah. I can't. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> we, so so journalism does require... And, and look, that's on, on one level, right? Mm-hmm. You know, try being a reporter in Afghanistan today, uh, dealing with the Taliban or in Yemen, you know, and getting, uh, you know, the Kevlar vest and the equipment needed to report from a vital hotspot like that that's going to affect the entire world. Right. Journalism does take money. And so, you know, it's a challenge, I think, to to come up with the solutions that are going to uh, make it still a viable concern. No, absolutely. I think like anything, it just has to evolve. It has to grow. It has to, yeah. you know. Yeah, but it's lagging behind the need for it right now. I mean, there was never a need for better journalism than with the Trump era, the assault mm-hmm. on democracy, or... Uh, you know, the vaccine. I mean, how is it that 40% of America doesn't believe this vaccine works? Right. That they will not get it. I mean, that's just insane. Everybody in America today had to get measles, mumps, rubella shots to go to grade school. Right. Right. You know, it's like, I I don't want to catch this. I don't want to die Mm -hmm. because you think uh, you know, Bill Gates is going to implant a microchip in your head <laughs> by you getting a vaccine. I don't know. I think, I think if anything, it's not so, it has to evolve in a way that is more, more accessible for people. Yeah. You know, I yeah, think, well, I think we're heading in a podcast. Uh, you know, I mean, people need to change their mindset. You know, mm-hmm. H.L. Mencken, one of the great philosophers of journalism said in the 1920s, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Mm. They are not entitled to their own facts. I think it's so much the accessibility, you know, especially with younger generations, people aren't picking up newspapers. They're not, you know, necessarily turning the radio on in their car, but people are listening to podcasts. Yeah. I think it's more so just trying to combine, you know, newer and older media and just getting them to try to merge or one to learn from the other, you know, to grow and evolve. Yeah, sure. Whether the news is delivered, you know, online or in a podcast or whatever the the format is, is irrelevant. You know, at the bottom line, great storytelling and accurate, thorough reporting is what's required. And, you know, that can come in Dead Tree Media or a print magazine, Mm -hmm. or it can come in, uh, you know, a podcast or a blog or, or, you know, the, the means of delivery is irrelevant. At the heart of it, it are storytelling and reporting. That's true. The content is what really matters, and that's what gets people to click or to listen or to tune in or however you want to put it. Yeah, for sure. But anyways, thank you so much for talking with us today and uh, doing this interview and everything. It means a lot. We really, really appreciate yes. it. Thank you so much. Oh, no problem. It's my pleasure.